Hey everyone, welcome to the Cornerstone Church Podcast. Our prayer is that through this message, you will find the Father, a family, and a fulfilling future. Be sure to connect with us online at Cornerstone Church Social to keep up with all things Cornerstone. Thanks for tuning in. Well, good morning, Cornerstone. How's everyone doing today? Doing good, doing good. It's good to be with you. It's good to see you. Um, I feel like today, even though it's not official, it's official. It's officially winter. Um, This morning when I was on my way, I had to wear a winter coat, and that was the first time all year. I try to push it off as much as possible. And today, I took my dog out and then said, absolutely not. I'm putting on a winter coat. And a little tidbit from our hospitality team, which is awesome. Um, is that we are going through coffee today like coffee is going out of existence. Um, So kind of when I start to see people drinking more and more coffee, I can realize like, oh, it's getting cold uh, because that's when people like coffee. But uh, genuinely, it is good to be with you. My name is Donnie. I'm the next-gen pastor here at Cornerstone. Uh, Listen, if I've not met you yet and you've been going to Cornerstone a long time or a short time, either or, I'd love to get to know you. I'd love to hear your story. I'd love to hear what God is doing in you. I don't think any of us are just kind of randomly going through life and there's really no purpose, there's really no rhyme or reason to it. I think God is at work in each of us. And so I'd love to hear your story because that's where we'll start to see where God is at work. Um, That being said, uh, this uh, week we kick off a series, or not kick off, we're in the middle of a series titled, I Want That Kind of Faith. I want that kind of faith. And there's two grounding verses for it. The first one comes from Hebrews 11.1, 1, which says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And the second grounding verse is Hebrews 11.6, which says, And without faith it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And so in this series, we're looking at the life of Joseph in Genesis, and we're exploring the inspiring acts and the inspiring examples of faith that leave us saying, I want that. I want what he has. Whatever he has going on there, I want that. And so Pastor Brenda last week kicked off the series by calling us to a when nobody is looking faith. You see, through the life of Joseph, um, there were various moments where he could have said, well, nobody's looking. I mean, nobody's really here. If I do this thing, who's going to know? It's kind of for our students or for kind of like young adults age, if you have TikTok, there's a TikTok sound that says, who's going to know? They're not going to know. Nobody's going to know. So Pastor Brenda called us to that when nobody is looking faith. What do you do when the temptation hits and you know you could get away with it? Uh, It's really interesting. It's awesome that we go to church every weekend. Again, I'm glad you're here. Uh, It's awesome that we serve as MPs. You guys are amazing. Um, But what does your individual faith walk look like from Monday to Saturday? It's a question we have to ask. Jesus calls us to follow him actively with our whole selves. And so that's what Pastor Brenda explored last week, but this idea of, of wanting that kind of faith, whatever it may be, as Christians, I think we all know what it's like to look at someone's life and either say internally to ourselves or externally to someone else, I want what they have. There's something different about them. I want that kind of faith. Whatever they did to get there, I, I, I want to do whatever I can. I, I want that kind of faith. And maybe you kind of struggled to articulate an example in your own life. Um, so I wanted to give you an example from my own life. Um, a, uh, about, oh gosh, several months ago, spring of 2022, spring of 2022, I had the opportunity to go and stay overnight at a Catholic monastery uh, in Cleveland, St. Andrew Abbey. It's a Benedictine monastery. 10 out of 10 would recommend they are some of the best people I have ever met. They are absolutely amazing. And I had already stayed overnight there once before. So this is my second time. And I was starting getting used to uh, the prayer rhythms. So when you go there and you stay the night there, you pray with the monks. So you have your own room and you eat in your own room. It's really funny. You eat at the same time as the monks, but you can't sit with the monks. It's really hilarious. But you eat with them. You, you, you stay overnight at the monastery, but you also pray with them. So it might hit like three o'clock and you'll hear the church bells going off and you're like, Ah, yes, it's time for prayer. So then you go down the elevator to the first level and you go into the sanctuary and you pray with them. So I started to get used to it. I already knew the prayer rhythm for that day. 
And after vigils, which was the, uh, the prayer that they do before each and every monk goes to their own room and finishes up what they need to do before they pray the Compline and then go to bed. And one of the monks who's also a priest, his name is Father Bede, he struck up a conversation with me in the monastery lobby. And we started talking and we just started uh, talking about our different Christian traditions. And it was amazing. I started to hear his story. I started to hear his passions, his, his love for what he does, his love for Jesus. You see, Father Bede, from the time he was a small kid, he knew he wanted to enter the priesthood which is really interesting because to become a Catholic priest, you give up a lot of comforts. You give up the ability to start your own family, to have a spouse and to have children. Uh, You give up the ability to really own a lot of possessions. As a Catholic priest, you don't get to own a lot and you don't make a lot of money at all. And so he gave up a lot of those comforts, but then he also became a Benedictine monk. And he was saying, I vowed to commit my life to prayer and to service to God and to others. And I also vow to live at this monastery, St. Andrew Abbey in Cleveland, and to die at this monastery. It is a life commitment. And so that alone is enough to make me go, oh my gosh. But then on top of that, one of the reasons he chose St. Andrew Abbey was because it's connected to Cleveland Benedictine High School. And he gets to be a high school teacher who teaches high schoolers traditional languages like Latin. So he gets to raise students up in the way of Jesus, teach them a language that was used by Christians for centuries. And so it was amazing. I'm having this conversation with him and I can see the passion in his eyes. I can see the love for Jesus in his eyes. And even as we're talking about uh, ways our traditions overlap, but then the ways they're separate, I just walked away going, I want what he has. I want that kind of faith where he's so content in his late 60s that he can have this conversation and he's openly telling me the reasons he got into the priesthood, the reasons he loves Jesus. It was amazing. And as I spoke with him, as I'm leaving, I just realized that it was like as if the presence of God just oozed out of him. It wasn't something he had to try to do. It was just his way of being. He had been with God and I wanted that. Uh, If you want proof of this, you can talk to my wife, Jordan. I came home the next day going, babe, I met this guy, Father Bede. He's amazing. We talked for three hours after vigils and she goes, Father who? Like what? And I'm like, no, you don't understand. He was amazing. I want what he has. It left me walking away saying, I want that kind of faith. And so I think we all know what this is like, at least on some level, but we don't just experience it when we have conversations with other Christians. We also experience it when we read scripture about the lives of people that we find in scripture. And so, as I said earlier, during this series, we're looking at the life of Joseph in the book of Genesis. And particularly today, we're going to be exploring Genesis 45, 1 through 15. So if you have a Bible with you, you can go ahead and turn there. Um, But if not, no worries. Uh, The scripture will be on the screen. And if you're a note taker, the title of today's message is Forgive Until It Hurts. Forgive Until It Hurts. If you couldn't tell from worship today, we're talking about forgiveness. But today, we're going to be exploring the kind of faith that forgives like Jesus. You see, as we mentioned before, I think forgiveness, both non-Christians and Christians alike would say forgiveness is a beautiful thing. When people are at odds with each other, when siblings haven't talked for years and yet they're able to come together, forgive one another and reconcile, I think whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, you'd say, that's beautiful. Like their ability to do that is inspiring. It's beautiful. And we would say that in theory until it becomes a personal thing, until we're the ones who have been hurt, then it becomes a difficult thing a thing that we try to wiggle our way out of at all possible. And so how in the world can we truly forgive someone who's wronged us in a real way, who's hurt us, who's lied about us, maybe even abused us? How can we forgive someone who's done that? And there may be no more challenging aspect to the Christian faith than Jesus's call on our lives to radical forgiveness. But that kind of faith that we're exploring today, a faith that forgives, it's possible. So we can seek that faith, even if it doesn't seem like it in the moment, it is possible. But it's also a faith that we need to seek. In other words, Jesus' call and command on his people is a call to receive the forgiveness of our sins 
and then extend that same forgiveness that we have received in Christ to others. But we might ask, how do we begin to seek that kind of faith that forgives? Like Jesus, where do we begin, especially right now, if we're going through it, if we don't see the other side of our hurt, of our pain, where do we begin? I think Joseph gives us a few clear ways on how we can begin that journey of becoming people who forgive like Jesus. But before we dive into our passage today, let's go ahead and pray. Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, set up your kingdom in our midst. Lord Jesus Christ, son of the living God, have mercy on us sinners. Holy Spirit, breath of the living God, renew us and all the world. Amen. All right, so we're going to read this story outright, and then we'll start to look and see how Joseph's life uh, gives us almost a framework on how we can become a people who forgive like Jesus. So it's Genesis 45, starting in verse 1. It says, Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me a father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children, your grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have. I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accorded me in Egypt and about everything you have seen, and bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept, and Benjamin embraced him weeping, and he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterward, his brothers talked with him. Okay, so here's some context. That was a lot. There's a lot going on. You might even be asking here today, okay, if we're trying to learn how to forgive like Jesus, why are we reading from the book of Genesis about Joseph when Jesus hasn't even jumped on the scene yet? And there's a number of reasons why. Number one, we as Christians believe that Jesus is the incarnate uh, God in the flesh. We would say he, Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the eternal son of God, which means that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It also means that the God we read about in the book of Genesis in the Old Testament is the same God that we read about in the New We also believe that the Bible is inspired by God. Paul says it is God-breathed. It is authoritative on our life, Old and New Testament. In other words, we would say that the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. There are multiple authors, multiple genres, number of books, but the Bible at its core is a unified story that leads to Jesus, which means that there's all these puzzle pieces and these remnants and these little signposts that are all pointing to Jesus and the ultimate fulfillment that he brings. And so I believe here, Joseph's life that we find in Genesis 45 is a perfect example of that. You see, Joseph, he was the favorite son of his father, Jacob. And Jacob was the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham. But Joseph was the favorite son of of Jacob. Did Joseph have brothers? Yes. And did Jacob love them? Sure. But Joseph, Joseph was the favorite. Jacob even got him this really fancy coat that just signified how Joseph was the favorite. And he wasn't scared to flaunt it. Joseph wasn't scared to go around and kind of let everybody else know that he was the guy in the family. Maybe if you have siblings and you're not the favorite, you know what this is like, 
where you're just like, mm, buddy, yep, you're the favorite, aren't you? Um, so Joseph was the favorite. And of course, this led to a lot of jealousy from his brothers. And so one day, the, his brothers are working in the field and jo- they see Joseph coming out to check on them. And they've just kind of had it. They're just kind of done. They're tired of seeing their dad just show favoritism to to Joseph. They're tired of seeing Joseph talk about how much uh, their dad loves him and how he's the best thing since sliced bread. And so Joseph is on his way to greet his brothers. And his brothers go, you know what? Let's kill him. Like, let's just end it. We'll say a wild animal got to him. And we'll, we'll say, see you later, alligator. But then they say, you know what? No, let's like, let's throw him in the pit like a pit, and let's talk about it. So they talk about it, and you say, you know what, what's better? We see some slave traders come, and they're merchants. We're gonna sell him into slavery. That way we can say, hey, we didn't kill Joseph. We just sold him into slavery, and they get some money for it anyway. So that's exactly what they did. His brothers took him, threw him in a pit, and then sold him into slavery. And so Joseph ends up in Egypt, and then he becomes second in command to his master, a guy named Potiphar, who was super powerful in Egypt, He oversaw all of Potiphar's estate, all of his house, all of his servants, all of his money, like Joseph oversaw all of it. And so you think, man, this is awesome. It's a success story, kind of American dream kind of situation. But then through a series of unfortunate events, Potiphar's wife starts making advances at Joseph, trying to bait him to sleep with her. And then he keeps rejecting her, keeps rejecting her, saying, absolutely not, that is wrong. And then Joseph then was unjustly thrown into prison because she falsely accused him of trying to sleep with her. So he's thrown into prison by Potiphar, and yet God was with Joseph. We might say that Joseph's life is his peaks and valleys, peaks and valleys, and we might say, well, you know, his faith must have wavered. God must have not been with him the whole time. He must have done something wrong. But when we read the life of Joseph in Scripture, we learn God was with him and that his faith was unwavering. And so in prison, some years had gone by, but he met two servants of Pharaoh, the cupbearer of Pharaoh and the baker of Pharaoh. And they start to have these unique dreams. And and God gives Joseph the ability to interpret these dreams, and they're about their future. Um, The baker would eventually be executed, and the cupbearer, though, would be reinstated. And so Joseph tells them these things, thinking, well, maybe when the cupbearer is reinstated, maybe he'll remember me and I can get out of this prison. Well, that doesn't happen. The cupbearer forgets about Joseph once he's reinstated. But some years go by, and Pharaoh starts having these very unique dreams. And then the cupbearer goes, oh my goodness. I remember when I was in prison, there was this guy, his name was Joseph, and he was able to tell me that I would be reinstated and the baker would be executed. So he knows what's gonna happen. So he, has, he tells Pharaoh about it, and Pharaoh reaches out to Joseph, has him come to him, and Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream, which reveals that there will be seven years of surplus of crop and then seven years of famine. And so Pharaoh, seeing Joseph's absolute wisdom, places him as second in command to himself. And so Joseph is second in command in the entire kingdom of Egypt, and he is in charge of stewarding the crops for the next 14 years. The seven good years go by, and then famine hits, but it doesn't just hit in Egypt, it hits in the entire ancient Near East. And so guess who that hits? It hits Jacob and Joseph's brothers. And so Jacob sends Joseph's brothers to Egypt to buy food, and they're going there in need. They're about to die. If they do not get this food, it's over. And they don't even know that who they're going to is the very brother that they sold into slavery, which is where we pick up. Let's come back through in verses one through four. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Let's just take a moment and in your mind's eye, imagine the emotion that Joseph must have felt. I mean, it had been decades since Joseph had saw his brothers and the last memory he has is them throwing him into a pit and selling him into slavery. Think about the weight of that, but not just that, the events that followed 
Think of all the trauma that's starting to just boil up in Joseph. He had been thrown into a pit by the people he thought that uh, he thought loved him. He's then enslaved by those same people. Then things start to get good. You think, okay, maybe things are on the up and up. But then he's falsely accused and thrown in prison for years. And here's brothers were in need. And Joseph had the power to do whatever he wanted, do whatever he saw fit. He's second in command to Pharaoh. Whatever he says to the servants, they'll do. He could do anything. And so I think this intense moment is enough to make anyone explode with emotion or make anyone collapse under the weight of what they had been through. And so maybe like Joseph, you've experienced this type of intense emotion where everything past and present is now coming to a head. There's no coping mechanism that's gonna deal with it. There's no ignoring it. There's no running away. These things need to be dealt with now. Maybe you've experienced that. Joseph might have been asking, did his brothers still hate him? Maybe, did they, did they celebrate when they just kind of conceded to the fact that he probably died somewhere along the way? Did they celebrate that? What did they do with the money they got for selling him into slavery? Better yet, did they deserve his help? He had the power to do whatever he wanted. Did they deserve it? Did they deserve forgiveness? This must have been what Joseph wrestled with. And it's what we as readers of the text need to wrestle with ourselves. And if we're gonna be honest, the answer is probably no. They didn't deserve help. They didn't deserve forgiveness. But Joseph, with unwavering faith in God, he did not return the favor of abuse. They abused him. He did not abuse them. What did he do? He wept. He allowed himself to feel the weight of such a moment. He's crying out in concern for his father who he loved so much. Did they deserve forgiveness? No. But did Joseph repay them for their wickedness, for their wrongdoing? No, he didn't. And we need to wrestle with this because scripture is full of instances like this. Remember, there's little remnants, little puzzle pieces, little signposts pointing toward the ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. There's scripture is full of instances like this where people are being forgiven when they did not deserve it. That's the brother's story, which is also your story in Jesus. So we know the story. We read it. Joseph forgives his brothers. But before we get to verse five, what did he do on his way there? I think he did two things. He allowed himself to feel the weight of emotion from decades of pain and trauma. We know what he went through, but we don't know full detail. And we know that prisons weren't as nice as they are today. Not that they are nice at all. He probably didn't get a meal every day. He probably didn't have a bed. So he allowed himself to feel the weight of the emotion from decades of pain and decades of trauma. And then he recognized the key wrong that was done to him. And then he revealed it to his brothers. He said, I am your brother, Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. So if we want a faith like Joseph, we need to be able to do the same in the process of forgiving those who have hurt us. So the first key point on our way to becoming a people that forgives like Jesus, we need to understand that to have a faith that forgives, we must identify. And we need to identify two things. We must uh, allow ourselves to feel and to process. We must be able to identify the emotion that we are feeling, the pain that we have experienced. We must allow ourselves to feel and to process. See, Joseph didn't try to hide his emotion. Sure, he sent the other servants away, but he didn't try to hide his emotion from his brothers who had hurt him. He both felt great pain for what his brothers had done, but he also intensely loved them. Too often, I think when we don't allow ourselves to process that which has been done to us, we do a few things. Number one, we lash out and we become toxic. That leads us to asking the question of, I'm going through so much. Where's everybody at? Why did everybody leave me? Why won't anybody help me? Why won't anybody talk to me? Every time I get close to someone, they go away. We lash out and we become toxic because we're not processing the emotion and the pain that we have. 
Or we might push those who love us away from us. We become emotionally unavailable. We become like walking stones. Anytime uh, somebody talks to us, they're like, hey, how's it going? Good. How are you? You know, it's life. I'm good. And we have no emotion because we are incapable of having intimate conversations because we're afraid of what might come up. We've never dealt with our emotions, so we don't want to have any emotion because it might open the floodgates. Or we might present ourselves as healthy, but we can only hide that for so long because it will and it does come to the surface. That's almost as if Joseph would have went to his brothers and said, hey guys, how's it going? Oh man, it's good to see you. How's dad? Is he doing good? Good, all right, here's some food. Hey, it's good to see you guys. Maybe you'll come back again. Completely ignoring the issue that they sold him into slavery. So if we're gonna truly live into Jesus's command to forgive as we have been forgiven, which we find in Matthew 6, 14 and 15, We need to learn how to begin to feel and to process our pain. But we also, we must uh, identify the offense. We need to identify the offense. Joseph says, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. You see, most of us can uh, mistake forgiveness again as ignoring the issue. It's as if Joseph would have never said anything and just sent them on their way saying, man, it's good to see you. We, think, we might think that forgiveness means that we go about our lives as if there'd never been an issue. Hey, I have, uh, you know, the wife and the kids. I got 2.5 kids, white picket fence. I got a 401k, a Roth IRA. Life's good. What do I have to complain about? I have a steady job. Acting like there is no issues. You see, it had been decades since Joseph had seen his brothers, and his last memory of them was when he was sold into slavery. And so the path to forgiveness that Joseph models for us was one of clearly naming and addressing the wrong that had been committed. There had been a number of wrongs that had been committed along the way, but it began with his brothers throwing him in a pit and selling him into slavery. And so if we're going to grow into having a faith that forgives, we must also be willing to have a faith that addresses wrongdoing. It doesn't run away from it. But addressing the wrongdoing isn't where Joseph stayed either, which is also another place that we can get stuck. We can be so obsessed with what was done to us that we don't move on to forgiveness. Joseph didn't stay there and neither should we, which leads us to Genesis 45, five through eight. Joseph says, and now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made, a father, he made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. So this is really the theological high point of Joseph's life but it's also the theological high point of our passage today. Joseph moves from naming the wrong to forgiving the sins of his brothers. Well, we might ask, how did he get there after feeling the pain and the trauma that he must have felt? How did he move beyond that hurt? How did he move from the moment where the world just felt pitch black around him where he couldn't see the other side? How did he move on to forgiveness? Well, I think it's clear he saw where God, is, God was at work. And this is a difficult truth for us to recognize, but our ability to forgive is directly connected to our faith and trust in God. Our ability to forgive is directly connected to our faith and trust in God. Because of Joseph's faith and trust in God, he was able to identify that God had taken the evil actions of his brothers because they were evil, but he took those evil actions and God turned it for good. Not just for Joseph, although he did, but for the entire ancient Near East. Think about it, there was famine and people would be dying because there would be no food and yet God had helped Joseph see that there would be famine coming. So he stewarded all of that so that people's lives could be saved, so that people could come to Egypt and buy food so that they could survive. God was orchestrating a path to redemption for Joseph and his brothers, sure. But God was also orchestrating provision for the line of Abraham 
maintaining his covenant to Abraham, which was to make his descendants like stars in the sky, unable to count, to make his family into a great nation, which would become the nation of Israel, and then ultimately, through his family, bless the nations, which would be fulfilled in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And so it was through this trauma that God had brought such beauty, such provision, such faithfulness. And it was Joseph's faith and trust in God that gave him the ability to see that reality. Like, let's just play devil's advocate for a moment or just theater of the mind. Imagine if Joseph had wavered in his faith and trust in God. What if he didn't believe that God was good anymore? Because how could God be good if he went through all that? How could God be good if he was sold into slavery, thrown into prison, left there to die? How is that possible? Imagine if Joseph thought that there was no way that God could be at work considering what he went through. If God was at work, why did I go through that? If God was at work, why didn't he help me? Imagine if Joseph gave in to the weight of the situation and just started to believe that God probably hated him or at least didn't care. Because if he cared or he loved Joseph, then he wouldn't let him go through that. You see, if Joseph thought that way, if he had actually wavered, he would have missed what God was actually doing. For him, sure, but more importantly, for the entirety of humanity, think about how Joseph's life fits into the larger work of redemption that God was doing. Imagine if he had just said, no, I'm not going to be part of this. He would have most likely treated his brothers poorly, and they would have either died by execution or starvation. Sure, God's redemptive plan would have worked out because he is God, he is sovereign, you know, providence and the whole thing, but Joseph wouldn't have been a part of that at all. But Joseph, in faith, he took a different route. He chose to forgive He was able to see the bigger picture of what God was doing. He was able to see how God could take his suffering and repurpose it into something that emanated what is good, what is true, and what is beautiful. He had found purpose in his suffering. Not that God caused the suffering, but Joseph found purpose in it. It didn't make uh, make what his brothers did okay. It didn't excuse their evil actions. Their evil actions were senseless and terrible. But finding purpose in his suffering showed that God was sovereign, showed that there, God was, had providence over the situation. God had the ability to take something that was meant for evil, what his brothers had done, and then turn it for good. Joseph says, so then it was not you who sent me here, but God. And so if that's something you're wrestling with today, maybe you're, uh, you can't see the other side of it. Maybe you've been hurt deeply by those you love. Please don't allow your hurt to cause you to miss what God is doing. You see, to have a faith that forgives, we must see where God is at work. We must do everything in our power to see where God is at work. You see, once we see where God is at work, we're able to move to forgiveness. We're able to truly forgive. And that's why to, this is the second key aspect of Joseph's journey and teaching us how to have a faith that forgives is we must see where God is at work. Now, you might ask me, what's forgiveness? Because we all have definitions for things and we all might think different things about forgiveness. I think there's two definitions that fit what we find in scripture and the forgiveness that we see in scripture. The first one's good. The second one, I think, gets to the root of the issue. The first one is freeing a person from guilt and its consequences. It's simple, it's concise, it's good. If you wanna think it in terms of salvation, in Christ, we have been freed from our guilt, of the guilt of our sin, and the consequences of our sin, meaning the eternal consequences of our sin. And now we can walk in freedom in Jesus. We can walk in new life. That's one definition, which is good, and I think it's true. But the second definition, I think, gets to the heart of the issue. Second definition for forgiveness is ceasing to feel resentment for wrongs and offenses, to pardon involving restoration of broken relationships. If you want to think about it in terms of salvation, In Christ, 
we have been forgiven, right? So that means that God no longer has any resentment for our wrongs and offenses. It's not as if you've come to Jesus and God is still saying, yeah, but that sin from 20 years ago that you still ask for forgiveness for time and time and time again, even today, can't get over it. It's too terrible. That's not what God does. God doesn't harbor resentment for our wrongs and offenses. He has pardoned us. He has freed us. And our broken relationship with God in Christ is restored. And that gets to the heart of what forgiveness actually is. That is what it is to forgive. You see, nowhere in scripture do we read that forgiveness is easy. Because it's not. We don't just wake up one day and you go, ah, man, I just have such a peace, I forgive you. No, it's not easy, especially when we've been hurt deeply. But from Jesus, we read that as Christians, we are both to walk in the forgiveness of our sins, having been forgiven, and then we are to freely forgive others as we have been forgiven. It is to walk like Jesus, which leads us to our final passage for today, which is Genesis 45, 9 through 15. Joseph says, now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have. I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves and so can my brother Benjamin that it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accorded me in Egypt and about everything you have seen and bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept and Benjamin embraced him weeping and he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterward, his brothers talked with him. You see, Joseph had forgiven his brothers. Now it was time to seek restoration and reconciliation. In Joseph's situation, restoration looked like calling his father's household to come and live under his care in Egypt. This was him saying, come, live under my care. I love you. I will take care of you. If he hadn't forgiven them and hadn't sought restoration, he might say, yeah, because I'm a nice guy, I'll give you some food, but go on your way. You stay over there. I'll stay over here. And we just have our differences, don't we? He doesn't say that though. He says, tell my father to bring his household here. Live under my care. I will take care of you. I love you. Restoration looked like weeping with his brother Benjamin, weeping with his other brothers, kissing them, talking with them. I can imagine that when they were talking together after they had sought reconciliation, restoration, that they're just sitting together saying, how are the kids? How's dad? Is he good? How's Aunt Susie? Like, how is she doing? Is she doing all right? And then just catching up over the decades that they had missed apart. You see, to have a faith that forgives, and this is the third key aspect to becoming a people that has a faith that forgives. To have a faith that forgives, we must work for reconciliation. This doesn't mean that there will always be complete reconciliation, but it is something that we must strive for. It is the very thing Jesus models for us. Think about it this way. Who have we as humans primarily sinned against? God, right? And who was the one to first extend the hand of reconciliation? It was God. And this is where Joseph's life points forward to Jesus in a big way. Joseph's very own life models this. Who did his brothers primarily sin against? Joseph. Who was the one to extend the hand of reconciliation? Joseph. And so if we want to have a faith that forgives, truly and not superficially, not saying, I forgive them, but I don't like them. I forgive them, I'll never talk to them again, though. And remember, it is to cease to have resentment for their wrongs and offenses. If we want to have a faith that truly forgives, not superficially, we must do everything in our power to seek reconciliation. And in most cases, when we work for it, when we work for reconciliation, reconciliation takes place. And I want to say that because a lot of times I think we as people, um, we like specifically in our culture in 21st century, we like to think we're the exception to a lot of rules. Can I just say that 
99% of the time, we are the rule, not the exception. Um, this is quickly becoming my favorite quote from Pastor Jacob. You're special, but you're not that special. Um, you're unique, but you're not that unique. 99% of the time, you are the rule. You must seek reconciliation if there's going to be full-on forgiveness. Now, there are exceptions for this. I want to be honest here. There are. There are exceptions to this. There's various forms of abuse in relationships that which we need to forgive. Like, that's a command from Jesus. We need to forgive. But relationship will most likely not be reconciled. But 99% of the time, which is the rule, and most of us are the rule. Again, we're special. We're not that special. We need to seek reconciliation. But we can't force it because it takes two parties. Joseph could have sought reconciliation here and his brother said, no, I still hate you. You were dad's favorite. I'm done. And they could have went back to their house and said, "Never mind, I'm okay. So Joseph could have sought reconciliation and they could have rejected him. So we cannot force it, but we must do everything in our power to work for it. it it's just like Jesus commands in Matthew 5, 23 and 24. It's not gonna be on the screen, but I'll read it for you. He says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at, the gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. You see, working for reconciliation, it's something that is so central to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It is something so central to truly forgiving those who have hurt us. They go hand in hand, they cannot be separated. But maybe you're still here, unsure. You're saying, that's nice for Joseph, but the pain I've experienced is too great. I can't see the other side. I'm trying, but there's no light at the end of the tunnel. My world has come crashing down around me. I don't know what to do. You've experienced this deep pain, but you can't see the other side. Maybe you can't even articulate what the pain is like. You can't see a scenario where there's gonna be forgiveness, let alone reconciliation. And I wanna be honest, as we wrestle with the text, maybe that's where Joseph was at at one point. We know the details about Joseph's life, but we don't know year by year what he was feeling and thinking. We know that his uh, faith and trust in God was unwavering. We know that. And we know that God was with him the entire time. We do know that. But maybe he wrestled with this too, and I would venture to say he did. I mean, he's thinking about what his brothers had done, what, what Potiphar's wife had done, um, what the baker and the cupbearer had done in forgetting him. And he's wrestling with this thing. I, I'm doing everything right here. I'm, I'm trying my best to be faithful to God. What do I do? Like, I, I can't see the light at the end of this tunnel. There's too much pain. There's too much trauma. There's too much hurt. How do I forgive them if I ever see them again? And maybe that's what Joseph wrestled with too at one point. But as Christians, we must realize that in Christ, forgiveness is possible because it was possible for you. If it was possible for you, it is also possible for them. After all, if you are a Christian, a faith that forgives is something that you can seek, like we said earlier. It's possible, even if you can't realize it yet, but it's also something that you need to seek. But maybe you still struggle deeply with this. I want to remind you that it's a journey. You don't just wake up one day going, yeah, I forgive them, it's fine. No harm, no foul, like, you know, I'll be all right. You know, grace, man, it's, it's good. Forgiveness, yeah, no, forgiveness is a journey. It takes time. To have a faith that forgives, we must identify the emotion and the pain that we've experienced, and we need to really process it, and that alone takes time. We need to see where God is at work, and that takes time because we can't always see where God is at work. And then we also need to work for reconciliation, which is an entire step in and of itself that is intimidating. But the journey of forgiving, as we have been forgiven, it's a hard journey, it's not easy, but it is also something that cannot be measured. Um, this is what Matthew 18, 21 and 22 says. Again, it won't be on the screen, but I'll read it. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Peter's trying to be a reasonable man. He's saying, hey, I've been wronged a few times. When do I kind of just like wipe my hands clean of this and say, yeah, you're not worthy of forgiveness anymore. You've done this too often. He's a reasonable guy. But Jesus answered, 
I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Jesus is doing a word play here. What he's not saying is, oh yes, 77 times is the marker on which we no longer forgive people. No, he's saying not seven times, Peter, but countless times. Time and time again, we forgive. Time and time again, we reconcile. Because that's what Jesus has done for you, isn't it? Your sins have been forgiven past, present, and future. And if you know yourself, you mess up a lot. So do I. And so if Jesus forgives us time and time again, and we as his followers are to be like him, we are to forgive time and time again. So this is Jesus saying we are freely to forgive. We don't put a cap on how many times we forgive someone. And we also do not judge whether or not that sin is forgivable. Because Jesus hasn't done that to you. He doesn't say, yeah, but you remember that one thing you did? I can't get over that. He didn't do that to you. And therefore, we do not do that with other people. Because on the other side of every act of forgiveness is an opportunity for new new creation life to take root. Think about it. It is through the ultimate act of forgiveness on the cross, through Jesus's life, death, resurrection, and ascension, that new creation life took root. Victory had had been won. And through Jesus, all humanity and creation has been restored, is being restored, and will be restored. And so when we forgive, we participate in that work of the kingdom in the world. We participate with Jesus in this. You see, our acts of forgiveness, they're like little signposts, almost like we were talking about with scripture. They're like little signposts, little puzzle pieces, little things pointing forward to the ultimate act of forgiveness in Christ. And so if you're struggling to forgive, I want to encourage you that new creation life is on the other side. It was actually last night um, as Jordan, my wife, and I were headed home. And I was just talking about the message, and I'm talking about it and, and, and what stuck out to me, how I think it went, all those different kind of things. And I started to get stuck on this idea that on the other side of forgiveness, new creation life takes root. And as I was talking with her about it, it, it took me back to almost three years ago, it would have been three years in December, of probably the moment of my most intense pain my most intense hurt. And it was, it was from someone I love who, who, who deeply hurt me, and I, I didn't know what to do with it. I'd never been hurt like that before. I, I, I didn't even know how to process it. In the moment, I didn't even know what I felt. I, sometimes I would feel angry. Sometimes I would feel sad. Sometimes I would feel hopeless. Sometimes I would just feel lonely and alone. And I didn't know how to process it. I didn't see another side of that. I thought there was no other side. I thought, this is just life. I guess now whenever that person is mentioned, whenever their name is brought up, whenever I see them, I guess I'm just gonna have this flood of emotion and there's gonna be no way around it. Maybe that's just my cross to bear, I guess. Maybe there is no new creation life on the other side of this whole thing. There will be no reconciliation. There's no way. There's no how. I can't see it. I, I, I couldn't see where God was at work at all let alone identify what I was feeling. And nevertheless, time and time again, I would go to God in prayer, not even knowing what to say, just trying to figure out what's next, what's on the other side of this thing. And it took a year. It took a year and some months. But there was forgiveness. I identified the key hurt. I identified the emotion I was feeling, I identified the wrong and presented it to that person clearly and articulately saying, this is what you did and this is a reality. And at the same time saying, and I forgive you. And there was reconciliation on the other side of that. It was hard and I couldn't see the other side, but there was another side and that other side was new creation life. And so if you're struggling with that, I, I, I want to say to you, I, I'm not just someone reading the Bible and telling you that, hey, on the other side of forgiveness, there's new creation life and you just need to figure it out. I'm telling you as someone who has been through it myself that on the other side of forgiveness, there is new creation life. And so when we forgive others, we extend to them the loving 
hand of mercy, grace, and reconciliation that was extended to us in Jesus, while also freeing us from the grip of their wrongdoing. In the process, we both become free. There's freedom for you and there's freedom for them. And so if we're gonna have that kind of faith, a faith that forgives, a faith that glorifies God and points to Jesus, we must identify our emotions in the key wrong. We must identify um, the key wrong and we must see where God is at work and we must work for reconciliation as much as possible on our end. And so friends, this journey, it's, it's not easy. Um, this sounds cliche, but it's worth it. There is new creation life on the other side of your pain, of your hurt, when you forgive, when you reconcile. And so to close out our time today, let's just go ahead um, and pause in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for modeling forgiveness in your son, Jesus. Thank you for freeing us from our wrongdoings so that we can participate with you in freeing others from their wrongdoings. Lord, we have freedom in Christ. I pray that you would help us see how us participating with you in this act of forgiveness and reconciliation actually extends that new creation life and freedom to those around us. Lord, if we can't see the other side, I pray that you would give us the strength by your spirit to continue seeking your face so that we may identify those key emotions and the pain that we're feeling, that we may identify the wrongdoing that had taken place, but then that we may forgive and that we may see where you're actually at work so that then we can ultimately reconcile and glorify you in the process. Lord, let us not get stuck in our pain Help us to walk in freedom. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, that's all for this week. Thanks again for joining us. If you'd like to contact us or find out more about our ministry, head over to our website at cornerstonechurch.info. Have a great week.